Welcome back to CATF Unmuted. I'm Trent Kugler, CATF's production manager and co-host of Unmuted. And as always, I'm joined by PR manager Gabby Tokach. Thank you, Trent. We are going to go ahead and jump right into this one. David Emerson Tony, who is one of CATF's trustees and a talented performer and director in his own right, chats with Caridad Fitch, who is the playwright of Ushuaia Blue. There's also another episode featuring John Keebler and Tina Stafford, who were performers in Ushuaia Blue this summer, so please make sure you catch that episode as well. And we would like to give a big special thanks to Mina Goodrich and Lawrence Dean. They are the play sponsors of Ushuaia Blue, and we are so thankful for all of the support that you have given us over the years, and also special good vibes to the West Virginia Humanities Council for supporting CATF Unmuted. All right, let's hand it over to David and Caridad. I hope you enjoy their conversation. Hi, um, this is David Tony, and this is the podcast for the Contemporary American Theater Festival in Shepherdstown, West Virginia, for the 2022 season. My name is David Emerson Tony, and I am a member of board here at the festival. So now, uh, this is Karit Svich. Hello, welcome. Uh, welcome to you and thanks so much for being here. And um, the name of your play in the festival this year is Ushwaya Blue. Is that right? That is correct. That's a beautiful title. I mean, yeah. it's 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 really just wonderful. Um, uh, Ushuaia Ushuaia is a uh, is a city or a town at the tip. It's of... a I, don't, I would call it a city. <laughs> I mean, okay, all right. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> well, we'll talk about the play later, but first yeah. of all, I wanted to um, hear you talk about. We'll have them learn about you, our listeners. So, um, where are you from? Sure, yeah. I was born in Philadelphia, uh, grew up mostly along the eastern seaboard in New Jersey, Florida, North Carolina. Um, yeah. And then, <laughs> yeah, and that, but there was like a stint in Utah for a while, and then there was a long stint in California, and uh, my parents are from Cuba and Argentina, respectively, uh, and I'm first gen, so uh, here in the U.S. So, uh, yeah, so a lot of traveling and a lot of um, uh, seeing different parts of the country, and I think that sort of fueled my, I was always one of those kids that was writing, but I think that it kind of fueled my interest in, you know, the expansive nature of storytelling and, and you know, the many different kinds of stories that are possible. Well, let me ask you this. When you did all that moving around, um, did it force you to live in your head some? Do you know what I mean? Because you have to make friends over and right. over again. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And, I'm an, and I'm an only child, so I think that's even more intense when you're moving right. around uh, because you, right. do, you do make friends and then you're like, but I'm never seeing them again. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so, yeah, yeah, and sure, so there's, sure. and you're constantly adapting as well. So I think that, yeah, and I think that because it was an only, I think that's just also kind of like, um, you're used to entertaining yourself. So I think that, I think that yeah, sure. the writing uh, was a, a wonderful outlet for that. Yeah. So um, in your process for writing a play, how do you start? Is, is it, is, 
are they full-blown ideas? Is it a little bit of an idea? Is it sometimes someone says something and you go, oh my God, um, or is it a slow drip and something you realize you don't know what you want to do? <laughs> It's all of the above. I mean, it depends on the play. Do you know what I mean? Huh. Plays are like a theater will commission me and they'll be like, write this. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> uh, other times I'm like, I want to write this. Uh, and it's, it often comes from a couple of places. Sometimes it's a geographical setting. Um, sometimes it's an invented setting based on a geographical setting. Uh, sometimes it's around the character voice or a couple of voices that start kind of you know, speaking to me, and I'm like, "Why are you speaking to me?" Uh, and I then I have to follow them and see what they're up to. Um, sometimes it's like something in the news, right? That I'm just, mm -hmm. you know, I'm like, "Oh, that's a, I want to write about that," or I respond to that in some way. Um, and you know, other times it's a you know conceptual idea, formally, like theatrically, like, "Oh, you know, I'd love to." I made a play that that um, I wanted to write something about. Uh, class and the wealth gap in the United States, towns that are left behind, you know, kind of basically treated as we're just not going to take care of you. Um, and right. so by, by, you know, the lack of a social safety net in this country. So, uh, and I was trying to figure out a way to do that. And then I thought about the idea of doing like a play that felt like a series of photographs and and that became kind of like a really exciting thing because then i was like oh yeah. i want to see if i can do that you know and so so the <laughs> formal thing kind of is stirs something on i would say that with ushuaia blue that came because um a professor uh a marine polar uh, biologist who's based at the university of alabama at birmingham his name mm -hmm. is james mcclintock um sought me out so uh, the University of Alabama's theater department had done a reading of a play mm -hmm. of mine called The Way of Water, which is a play set in the aftermath of the Deepwater Horizon disaster. Mm -hmm. right. um, and, you know, uh, it had gone over well and they liked it and all that. And he happened to be in the audience for that play. And so, mm -hmm. you, know, uh, you know, you never know who's going to be in the audience. <laughs> So he called me up and he said, you don't know me, but I teach at the university. And uh, this is, you know, I spend half of my year in Antarctica doing research and have been doing it for the past 20 some years. Um, there might be a play in this. And I was like, oh, mm -hmm. okay, let's meet up. You know, so I met him uh, and there was a kind of simpatico thing that happened uh, around shared concerns around the climate emergency. Um, and also, you know, I'd never written anything that was set even remotely in Antarctica. So I was really, really intrigued. Um, right. Then I read his book. He wrote a book uh, intended for general readership called Lost Antarctica. Um, and, and I was like, oh, wow, this is like, he's a wonderful writer. And there's also kind of incredible sensitivity in his writing. Wow. It's very moving. And so, and so I was just like, oh, this is, this would be a cool way to approach this. And then fast forward to how are we going to make a play happen? And I was like, how about I interview you? And so what I did is I, like we're doing here, I interviewed James uh, for a few months, uh, took a lot of notes and then ran away and wrote a play. And I think that the convergence of that is that partly it was, you know, inspired by his research. Uh, uh, I knew that the climate emergency would be in the foreground of the writing. That was, a, you know, given a shared concern of both of us, and obviously it's a shared concern for the planet and humanity. Right. Uh, and yeah, sure. uh, yeah, and then Ushuaia came into it because it's the last town 
uh, once you at the end of Argentina, so before you take the ferry to go to Antarctica. And I had right. always, I had always wanted to write a play that was partially set in Ushuaia. Uh, and I hadn't figured out the container for what that play would be. And then suddenly I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> like it's actually just, it's being given to me in a weird way. Uh -huh. I was like, here's Antarctica and here's Ushuaia. I can, I can actually <laughs> write, I can write the two things, you know, I can write sort of respond to two things at the same time. And so, so that's how that happened. And, and, um, yeah. And, and then, and then it's just a process of like, that's a little bit about like, how does the work happen? So I would say that it's kind of like a series of um, lots of note taking. And then I, and then I, I get very obsessed and I just want to get a draft done like really quickly. You know, I, I'm just mm -hmm. trying to like chase that idea down as, as far as I can. Um, and then because until I get to end of play, I'm just a basket case. Because you know, then I, you know, the obsession won't leave me alone. Um, and then Can I, I ask put you it a away, question. Put it away for a while, yeah. then I come back. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when you say obsessed, are you writing huge hours of the day, or or just three, or is it you stop? How does it work? Yeah. When I'm working on a play, I'm writing usually daily or every other day four or five hours a day. I try to write a thousand words a day when I'm writing a play so um, mm -hmm. so that I'm kind of um, at speed. Uh, sometimes right. that works and sometimes that doesn't. Um, mm -hmm. And some plays take longer, um, uh, you know, or, or are slower, I should say, in their, their output. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, but I try to, I'm trying to, I'm not one of those writers that writes every day. So, so when, I, when I know I'm writing a play, like I write other things, you know, I write emails <laughs> and, I, and I tweet and like do other things. Yes, but, yes. Uh, but, um, but when I'm writing a play, I, I'm like super dedicated because like I said, I'm just trying to get to the end, you know, mm -hmm. especially in that drafting stage. And so I'm very like uh, pedal to the metal in terms of like making the work right. happen. And then I leave it alone for a while. Like I just, you know, then I'm often like I'm binge watching whatever on TV or like you know, whatever oh, well, I'm doing. Okay. Yeah, and then I come back to it. So, so mm -hmm. uh, I try to give myself some space around the writing process uh, before I go into the revision stage. Well, have you ever had the experience? I've talked to other writers, and something you wrote a long time ago, and you pick it up, and it goes, "Oh, that's nice. Who wrote that?" Oh, and then you recognize it. Oh, that. Oh, that. That's me. Have you ever had that experience at all? Yes, uh, because I write so many, so much. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm often encountering, <laughs> I'm often encountering plays that I've written. And I'm like, what? What was I thinking? You know, um, <laughs> who is that? You know, it's sort of funny. I mean, with the with you know COVID hitting in 2020, and and I had like a six shows sort of stop in their tracks. Uh, Ushuaia being one of them, uh, yeah. and. Um, and I think, and so this year, I mean, I've been making work in between uh, and mm -hmm. thankfully and, and grateful for opportunities that have happened in the last two years, but uh, four of those shows premiered between February and July of this year. So okay. I suddenly was, I was in that space of like, old friend plays. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen you in a while. Who are you? You know what I mean? Because it, it also the world's changed entirely. And, and you right. know, and all of the plays 
that premiered this year all had different gestation periods. So like mm-hmm. Ushuaia, Blue, Ushuaia Blue being the one with the, with the longest one, it had about eight years of okay. gestation, uh, you know, from like initial commission to like development and all that stuff. So um, the I think the one that premiered in February at Gallup Theater in Washington, D.C., um, that had the shortest gestation period because that that was commissioned. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, I guess that maybe like second or third month into the start of the pandemic, and then I was right. just kind of like you know, and then it was like a lot of rewrites and stuff. But basically, I was right. Uh, it, it happened fairly quickly, uh, given this given theater's slowness. So, um, so yeah, so I I feel a little bit like I'm I've been visiting old friends and wondering who they are. And, yeah. And who I am, the relationship, all of that. Right. Uh, do you wonder if when you restart something that you've had such a long time, if you still know, I, I think of plays as people, mm-hmm. and do you still know the person or do you have to get acquainted or you, it's been so long, I don't really think that anymore. Right. Just it or try and be who you were. Does that make any sense? To yeah, it does in? make sense. That makes total sense. I mean, uh, yes, yes, and no. I I think what I'll say about that is that the um, it's a tricky question. Obviously, you are who you are when you write something, and you know, hopefully, you're an evolving human being, and, right. <laughs> and you don't stay right. the same forever. Because <laughs> um, uh, that's like that's a little scary. Um, yeah. But but what I will say is that there's something thing about honoring the impulse from where the play originally came from that I that I really believe in. So even if I may not I, you know, years of may have passed and I'm no longer in that headspace, I try to recapture uh if I'm revisiting work, uh or right. I'm in a position where I'm where I'm having to do that. Like I just did that actually with a play. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. I just did the play. Um, so there's a play that I, this will be a good example. I mean, I, there's a play that I did called The Labyrinth of Desire, which is an adaptation mm-hmm. translation of a Lope de Vega comedy. And and I wrote I wrote it in 2005. It started as a translation. It became an adaptation because clearly I wanted to intervene into the text and right. you know, it had to, it, you know, it had to become something else. Um, and but it's still kind of a fusion of mm-hmm. me responding to Lope. So I wrote it in 2005, it got done. It was commissioned by University of California in San Diego. Um, it had a beautiful production there. And then it got mm-hmm. picked up for a professional production at Milagro Theater in Portland. Um, you know, and then it had other productions. And I kept kind of, after the production in Portland, I, which I thought the play was done. You know, I was like, in my head, it was done. Then I was like, huh, <laughs> it's, <laughs> I have to fix this. You know, I started to get kind of like, I'm not sure I want that to happen anymore. Like, that was a situation where I became, there was something about the ending of the play where I was trying to go mm-hmm. in one direction. And then I saw it twice in production. And I was like, initially, I was like, oh, cool. And the second time, I was like, no, I don't want that. You know, and so then I went back and I did a big rewrite on it. And then, okay, I'm done. And I was like, I'll leave it alone. Uh-huh. Okay. And then this year, uh, University of Kansas is going to do it in the fall. And nice. uh, they called me up and I was like, awesome, yay. Uh, and then they were like, have you thought about rewrites? <laughs> and I was like, what again? And, and so <laughs> and so then they sent me some notes and then I was like, huh. So I went back into the play and I was like, oh my God, of 
course. Yes, this, this, and this. And suddenly I was in it and I was in it and I was responding. And, I, and, and then it, and it was what was really interesting about the process with Labyrinth of Desire is that there were a couple of scenes that had always bothered me, but I kind of, I did that thing that sometimes writers do, which is like, I'll leave it alone because mm-hmm. I can't figure it out. And, uh, right. and, uh, and then I, I sort of, that instigation of getting those notes, and at first it was a little bit ruffled. I was like, what do you mean? No. And then I was like, how dare you? How dare you? Right. And then I was like, oh, let me look at it. I mean, years have passed. It's not 2005 anymore. Right. You know, and so, uh, and then I was like, oh, this is a chance to like fix some of those scenes <laughs> that I never got a chance to fix the first time around. Uh, and then I, I actually make changes that I really love. So, so that was like a wonderful, I was like re-meeting a version of myself from the past but also taking ownership over the process of it and also acknowledging some of the, that play deals a lot with gender politics and I think just acknowledging how much has changed even in the short time between 2005 and now. So so that was like a wonderful opportunity. I, I don't think that would have happened if they haven't hadn't instigated it to be honest, but it was what a, that was a kind of a gift. And also it made me remember that you can always go back into the work and, and like putter. Um, I think that my tendency is to, once the play is up or has maybe a second or third or fourth production, if you get so lucky uh, to kind of leave it alone because I, I just get tired and I want to move on. Um, there was a play that I did that, that was really interesting. It's a play of mine called Fugitive Pieces, which is now a film called Fugitive Dreams. And uh, that, Congratulations. that had a, Oh yeah, that was like totally indie, like mm-hmm. fire bootstraps, you know, making the movie. So. Uh, and but it got made, but it got made, yeah, which see, is a huge see. achievement. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and uh, that one was interesting because that it had had, had a premiere and it had a second production, both of whom, which were like really, I was very proud of. Mm-hmm. And then. There was a production of at Salvage Vanguard in Austin, Texas, um, and uh, and that director ended up directing the movie. You know, twenty years later, right. <laughs> we made the decision to make the movie happen. Um, and at the time, he was like, "We're doing the show at Austin." And I was like, "Awesome! This is so exciting!" And then he said to me, "Have you looked at the scene?" And then he like pointed to something, and I was like, "Hmm." And then he looked at the scene, and I was like, "Hmm." <laughs> And so I made, I made, I made like very big cuts for the Austin production, um, mm-hmm. post, you know, two premieres of that show, right. uh, which then became the script, you know, in a sense. Okay. And then when I, we visited it for the film, we made even more, we made even more changes, obviously because it's now a film, but, but also because there was one particular moment in the play that I had kind of like at the time, put my foot down. I was like, no, this will never change. It will never change. You know, I was just like, I was just adamant. You know what I mean? And yeah, then, sure, sure, of course. Yeah, and then we kept running into this issue with the screenplay, and um, I was just like, damn, how can I fix this? How can I fix this? And it suddenly materialized, and suddenly I was like, oh, I wish I'd know. I wish I'd done this like twenty years. <laughs> go with the play like I, I it was like the perfect solution and I right. and I I sometimes wonder if I hadn't put my foot down so hard uh I could have made that solution happen then you know so right 
well, uh, also, I wanted to talk to you. You mentioned about uh, taking classics, and I use that term loosely because right. who's classic and who I decided know. it was classic. Right. Yeah. Um, but um, in your relationship to them, do you find something specific in the story that relates to you as a human being? Or, or and do you try and stick to the original story as much as possible, and why? Right. Yeah. It depends, actually. When I'm translating, when I'm just translating, which is not a just because it is an art form, um, right. my goal is to literally like make it speak in a new language and culture and theatricality right. and time frame and all those things. And, and I'm basically just trying to deliver quite a creative version of it that works for the moment, right? Um, right. okay. When I, so that's that's one. Well, can I ask a quick question about that? Yeah, sure, of Is, course. Yeah. Um, so, are you staying true to how you see it, or how you think the original playwright saw it? Oh right. Uh, I think when I'm translating, I acknowledge that it's a fusion of like my okay. lens on the work. Um, but I keep the structure and I keep, you know what I mean? I'm not messing with like the actual art object in terms of the way it functions. Oh, you're right, right, sure. Um, when, but the other, when I, in, when I intervene with the, with the classics, quotation marks, <laughs> um, uh, it's, it's much more from a rebellious point of view. Like it's usually, usually from a feminist point of view or, 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 mm -hmm. or, or, or as I like to say, from a feminist Latinx point of view. So, so like with Iphigenia Crashland Falls, I, I just became, I was just really angry at Euripides, but I also love Euripides, but you know, I was also angry at Euripides because Iphigenia is not the center of Iphigenia at all. It's what happens is that that play is really about uh, her dad, you know? And so, so it's, it's really a play about Agamemnon. And so I was just like, but her, where is she? She gets sacrificed and then the war happened, you know? And so I was like, what does she feel about all that? You know, so I, mm -hmm. I really wanted to intervene uh, into that. And then I smashed it up. Like it's, it's, it's very, it bears little resemblance uh, to the Euripides. Um, uh, the same thing happened with 12 Ophelias, which is a smash up of Hamlet. And, uh, and it's, it's very much its own piece. And, and I'm basically um, almost doing a mirror negative of Hamlet. Uh, uh, and I, I think that's true for most of the stuff that I, that I actually do interventions or smashings or riffs of. Uh, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm kind of like, I, I pick I pick up a thread in the original work that I'm just usually angry about. It's usually what happens. <laughs> you know, like, why is this happening? Usually to women mm -hmm. in the stories, uh, and um, right because they're usually at this cast to the side or at the margins of the story. And so I'm trying to kind of like reframe it completely and, and overhaul it. Like so, I just did a I, not just but relatively new uh, a play called Desdemona's Child which is kind of like built on the ashes of Shakespeare's Othello and and I and I really right. wanted to look at sort of the the complex legacy of Shakespeare's play but also set it within a contemporary context uh, mm -hmm. around uh, systemic racism and around cl uh, the climate emergency. And so, and, and very much right. from the idea of inheritance, like whose stories are we inheriting and why? And yeah, sure. how are they and how are they continuing to live in, in a landscape? Uh, so, right. so yeah, so, but they come from, they come from different places and, um, 
I've done a, I, I've done a lot of these kind of interventions, uh, usually self instigated. Um, that right. like nobody's asked me to do them uh, 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 out of my own. Partly is to have a conversation with those other sources. You know what I mean? It's like yeah, sure. I want to get I want to get in there. <laughs> I want to get in there and, uh, you know, have a chat with uh, Sophocles yeah. and have a chat with Shakespeare, you know, right. and be like, right. this is what I think. <laughs> <laughs> what was the process for you like at that HF? Was it a good process? Um, um, what were the steps? Well, there were many because uh, Ed, uh, who was the founding artistic director, I know. was supposed I'm to direct Ushuaia, uh, Ed. And, um, and so, you know, and then we had this, you know, pandemic hiatus, uh, the thing that happened in the middle. And so, and suddenly Ed was like, no, I'm no longer going to be, uh, you know, I'm stepping down. And, and so, and then it became a kind of reshuffle of like, oh, who's actually directing my play? <laughs> <laughs> and Jesse D. Hill uh, is a director that actually I had pitched Ed originally when we first met, uh, before he told mm -hmm. me that he wanted to direct Ushuaia. Um, and uh, I've worked with Jesse before. I really admire her, and um, she gets me. And so, and I was like, fingers crossed. I hope I hope we can circle back to Jesse. Um, Jesse said yes, but she was also in a position of inheriting basically. Uh, a production that was half designed already <laughs> and like you know I mean, so oh, there are okay. a lot of you know what i mean a lot of the we were fairly far along right we were we were like finishing up casting when everything hit we were, we were like finishing up casting a design process had happened like lots of mm -hmm. conversation you know uh the uh, broken chord and david remedios uh we had all been talking about the score and the music for the show uh you know so mm -hmm. there's just a lot of things that were in place when jesse came in um uh, but it's a it was blind also a date. Yeah. It's a blind it's a date. Blind but, date. Yeah, yes. yeah, absolutely. But also it was a chance to reimagine some of those oh, okay. initial choices. So I thought what was really exciting about so yes, the process was amazing, great. Uh, I'll answer okay. that part of your question. The other part of it is that we really got a chance to rethink a lot of things. And one of them had to do mm -hmm. with the fact that play for me in my brain had always involved uh, some aspect of projection of video. And, uh, and Ed uh, was very adamant that that would not be the case. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so I was like, but, but, uh, okay. Um, and, uh, and then when Jesse came on board, you know, as things happen, you know, I brought that idea back. I was like, you know, Jesse, I, this is the one thing that's been nagging. I mean, I really, I, to me, it feels essential to the storytelling and, yeah, sure. And, and we just, I really, I hope we can, we can figure out a way to try this. Uh, if there's even right. room in the budget for this to happen. So we had to kind right, of maneuver right. some other things to make, mm -hmm. to bring that, to come, make that come to life. Um, but right. it was such a thrill and, and uh, it's been a, a, like a smooth and beautiful, not always smooth. I won't talk about some of the backstage stuff that happened, but um, uh, for the most part, I would say exceptionally positive and a nurturing process. So I'm very proud of it and I'm very proud of the production. Well, I wanted to talk about more about your play, Blue. Babe, it was terrific. And so, um, and, and I, what, I, what I saw was your, and just to admit, I'm off, brother, you don't know what you're talking about. I um, know, I have no yeah, idea what it, you're gonna say. <laughs> well, well, um, uh, well, I always preface things just in case it hurts. And so, <laughs> um, 
it isn't a message play, but it, it easily could have been. That was my feeling. And the reason I felt it wasn't is because of your ability to meld what the, the characters want and what the play is discussing. Um, it seemed to be so much about relationship. Yeah. Um, and, and, and everything they're involved in is a sort of relationship. And, and but also one of the things, even when things got very dark, you have an ability to maintain hope um, and show the resiliency of people at the ends of scenes. It was, it was just terrific, just really, really terrific. Thank you. Echo, <laughs> echo. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, I, I will say that I, that one of my, one of the challenges for me in writing the play was that. Um, I mean, I've written a lot a lot of plays that sort of. Focus oh, on oh yes, you have. <laughs> on the, but but a lot of them that are focused on the climate emergency, you know. So because okay. it's uh, you know that's been an ongoing even before. Yeah. I'm going to use the word fashionable for a second. It's, you know what I mean? For some people, it may seem fashionable or whatever, but actually it's, I've been a longstanding, like I've been writing about climate for a long time, you know, so, yeah. and the environment and uh, environmental racism and like, that's always been one of my subjects. So, um, but I knew, uh, oh, heavens, I wanted to capture, I think there was something about, of course, because it was instigated by James McClintock, you know, like, he is so hopeful, you know, mm -hmm. he is like, I am in awe and wonder of the world and I still believe we can do something to save it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, um, right, sure. and I wanted, so I was like, cause my, I think my tendency can be sometimes to be just despair, despair, despair. I want to, can I cry in a right. bottle? I like, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, and, uh, but I was like, no, I want to make sure that that's active. This, this sense of wonderment or the sense of hope, this sense of like connection, human connection, and also a coexistence with the planet. Like this, this, this idea of how do we create harmony with the planet? Um, which means, you know, yes, as I say in the play, listening, listening, and then acting upon that listening and really doing deep listening. Um, and then I really wanted to write a love story. And uh, because yeah. I thought, well, that will be a, I hadn't, I hadn't written one in a while, so I was like itching to write one yeah. again. And also right. I was like, oh, that'd be a great hook. Like this sort of like, from a storytelling perspective, I was like, if you're hooked into a love story that's, you know, kind of like a relate, so we're already starting with a relationship, you can kind of expand from there in terms of getting an audience's right. trust. Um, yes. And also because love stories tend to be vulnerable, they are about vulnerability and how people express their vulnerabilities with one another. Right. Then it's also kind of allows for walking into literally walking into terrain um, psychologically and spiritually that is also incredibly vulnerable. So so that was very conscious. And then and then yeah. I was I was happy to discover in the writing process um, that, that I that I sort of wasn't. Um, that I wasn't getting uh, caught up in the, there was a, like a tragedy at the core of the story, uh, yes. multiple ones, you know, but, uh, 
that I wasn't letting that kind of uh, derail me, you know, as a writer. And partly that right. had to do with, um, with uh, I was thinking about when I was working on it, I was thinking a lot about the act of dreaming, which I know I talk about in the play, but um, okay. yeah, they, um, there was a colleague of mine that had done research uh, many years ago around um, coma states and dreaming. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, and I was like, if I can activate that dream space and it can start to be part of, so that Sarah's dream space then meets Jordan's dream space in grief and potential grief, illness, all of those things. Then we map that onto the planet and, and specifically what's, you know, sort of because of the focus of the story is around Antarctica uh, as a kind of met metaphor. Uh, and then how indigenous cultures are the caretakers and the guardians of the earth and, and right. uh, actually making that kind of like the heart of the play, right? And so, um, so that that became like a, an active search for me as a writer, and also, but something that I really kept in mind. If, if I can get so, like, from a practical perspective, if I can get the audience on board to the love story, hopefully their hearts will be open enough to follow everything else, everywhere else that the play, where the play leads. If that makes sense. Love, love is, yeah, it, it, love is contagious. So yes. um, they love each other. So yeah. and everybody wants to be the second person. Of something. They don't want to be the first. So if they love each other, oh, he must be of love. And then they talk, talk about the earth. Oh, the earth must be worthy of love. So right. here we go. And the play. No, right. it was terrific. Just terrific. Let me ask you this. And this is the last question. What do you write about? You know, um, themes I, I think repeat in uh, a playwright's world because it's something they're trying to figure out themselves so are there is one thing or are there several things that you're still trying to figure out what am i trying to figure out yeah <laughs> uh, trying i'm trying out? to figure out a lot of things i mean I, I tend to write a lot about people running away and they're looking for home uh, and where mm. does home exist and what does home mean? Um, uh, and that's not something that I, that I necessarily knew nobody writing about early on in my career. I, I think that I, I didn't know what I thought I was writing when I started, first started. I was just kind of chasing ideas. Um, and then, but that's kind of been a consistent theme through a lot of the plays, even the plays that are on the surface. Uh, you wouldn't know that that's what's happening in them. But uh, but I see it. I see it like a big time. Right, right, sure, yeah. sure, yeah. sure. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much thank for you. doing this with me today. Super um, fun. It was fun. Oh, my goodness. Um, this has been Karad Svich, and my name is David Emerson Tony. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to David Emerson Tony and Karadad Savich for sitting down to discuss Karadad's new play, Ushuaia Blue, from our 2022 season. 
And because we know you're already excited for the 2023 season, make sure you get your Think Ahead Pass today. They are only available for a limited time, so pop on over to catf.org slash thinkahead and order yours. You will have the first chance to select your performances for the upcoming season. All right, that's it for now, but don't forget that all of the episodes about Whitelisted, The Fifth Domain, Babel, and Ushuaia are already in your feed right now, so you can go ahead and listen to the next episode. Check out CATF's website, catf.org. Find us on Facebook, at catf at su. Or connect with us on Instagram and YouTube. And those are both at Think Theater, and that is a theater with an E-R. If you're able to, please rate the podcast five stars. It will help Trent and I feel really wonderful about ourselves, and it will help other theater lovers discover CATF. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget, if it's not a new play, it's not CATF. <laughs>